Powered by MPB, this is Chalkboard Chat, an MPB education podcast. Hosted by Jermaine Flood and Tara Wren. To hear this episode and more, visit education.mpbonline.org or download the MPB public media app to listen on your iPhone or Android device. Jermaine Flood in for Chalkboard Chat. Welcome to our Mississippi Education and Reentry three-part episode series. This is part two. In this series episode, we'll be discussing the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative as it was implemented inside of Parchman by Dr. Linda Kina of the University of Mississippi. And then we'll sit down with the founder and CEO of the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative, Gary Schuniger, to discuss his program and everything that went into making that initiative. Right now in with me, I have Dr. Linda Kina. She is an associate professor of criminal justice and legal studies at the University of Mississippi. Now, she's a former state of Missouri adult probation and parole officer and for over 27 years has taught various criminal justice courses and facilitated faith-based restorative justice and entrepreneurship programs to maximum security prisoners nationally and internationally. Now, she has a record of scholarly publications which reflect a variety of restorative justice, corrections, and servant leadership topics. She's also co-author and project director for Meth Education for Elementary Students. That's a nationally recognized methamphetamine education program for third and fourth graders. And she's a member of the American Corrections Association's Professional Education Council and Delegate Assembly representing institutions of higher learning and a life member of the National Association of Community and Restorative Justice. Now, in addition to all of this. She also implemented the ELI program to teach inmates about the entrepreneurial mindset as part of a pre-release program. Now, her findings were published in the International Journal of Offender Therapy and Comparative Criminology. Dr. Linda Kina, welcome to Chalkboard Chat. That was an introduction there. That was a great introduction. I hope I can live up to all of that. I know you will. I already know you will. I am so glad that you are here on Chalkboard Chat. We're going to sit down with you. Then we're going to sit down with Gary Schuniger to discuss the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative. But right now, I want to get into everything that is Dr. Linda Kina. So I wanted to know, basically, what has brought you to criminal justice and brought you to just your whole passion for criminal justice reform? Well, you know, uh, Jermaine, I get asked that a lot over the years because I'm extremely passionate about working with offenders and rehabilitation. And I'm not really sure how it all started, but I just know that I was a junior in undergraduate school and miserable in taking business courses. And I would walk home from school and I couldn't wait to get my Time magazine. And you know, I'm a nerd when I'm in college <laughs> and getting Time magazine delivered to me. And as soon as I'd open up that magazine, I'd flip to the back and read an issue, the little section on law. And I always had heard, find something that you like to do and figure out a way to get paid to do it. Mm -hmm. And I knew I liked reading about law. I knew I liked reading about offenders, behaviors, and so forth. And so I just took an intro to criminal justice course on a whim, fell hook, line, and sinker. And I haven't had to read anything the rest of my life because it's been a joy to get to read every textbook that's been Mm -hmm. assigned to me and anything I can get my hands on. And so that's kind of how I got started in this. And I started off with, as a probation and parole officer out of undergraduate school. Okay. And I used to say a lot, I can't believe I get paid to do this. It was so rewarding. It was, you know, you didn't have to clock in and it was time to go before you knew it. <laughs> you know, you're a state employee. I found that it was a career where you got to wear lots of different hats, mm-hmm. where the judges had at some point, the social worker, Top. I mean, you just got to wear it all within an hour's time, perhaps, in an average day. And so I like the variety. What I enjoy most of all is watching people change their behavior, watching offenders that seem to have three strikes against them, you know, hit the ball out of the park. And that's been the most rewarding part. And that's how I ended up with this. I was attending a conference in Little Rock, Arkansas. It was a Clinton's policy conference. Mm. And I'm in a room with hundreds of people 
most of them are looking at their cell phones and listening to whoever's speaking. And there's just one gentleman that came up on the stage that just captivated me, and that's Clifton Talbert. And he was up there promoting the book that he and Gary had written on who owns the ice house and the eight life lessons from an unlikely entrepreneur that they had just published a year earlier. And he was promoting this because he wanted people to know that they have this online program, the ELI have this, that you can go in and take this online entrepreneurship education. But as he stood there and talked, he kept saying things that he was reared in Mississippi Delta, in Glen Allen, Mississippi, just south of Parchman. And it was during the height of legal segregation. He was very poor, grew up in a cotton field. That's all he knew. But his uncle Cleve owned the ice house in Glen Allen. And he plucked Clifton Talbert out of the cotton field and said, I want you to come work for me. And this book that he published is about the eight lessons he learned from watching his uncle Cleve, a black man who Mm -hmm. owned a business in Glen Allen, Mississippi, very unlikely entrepreneur, and that's what the book is about. And he kept saying things like, you know, I learned that you could choose a different path that You can make a contribution to the community. You can make a contribution to the world that he never thought he was going to be able to do because he was reared in such adverse conditions. Mm -hmm. And he'd say things like, you can overcome adversity by changing one's mindset. I'm like, he is preaching to me. I'm sitting there and I'm so anxious because I'm thinking, I want to do this for my prisoners. I want this program for my prisoners. And when he finished speaking, I hopped up, got my business card, went up and stood in line with about 15 other people that were waiting to talk to him Mm -hmm. that he had inspired. And whenever I finally got to him, I could hear him say, I have to rush, i got to catch a fly or whatever. So I just hastily handed in my business card, told him, I'm from the University of Mississippi, and I'm interested in conducting this program at Parchman Prison. And I wrote on the back of the card, and I'd love to speak with you. And he didn't call me. He didn't send me any flowers. He didn't send me smoke signals, nothing, no candy. I mean, like, why wouldn't he want to talk to me? I mean, this is, in my mind, it was perfect. It was it just what my prisoners need. Yeah. But he did finally call me six weeks later or send me an email and said, let's chat. And so when I shared with him what I wanted to do with the program, he was all in on it. But the problem became in implementing it in the institution mm-hmm. because we have access to internet and this is an online education program okay so it took a little work and i wrote a grant worked with the ewing marion kaufman foundation out of kansas city and the entrepreneurial learning initiative and they took the online lessons turned them into cds sent them to me after i got trained to be a facilitator and I throw those in my clear backpack and yeah. each week walk into the prison and stick those CDs in a DVD player so that the inmates can have access to the course that otherwise they would have no access. Listen. Oh, you know what a cool story is? What? Is that it was a 29-inch television and I had 20 inmates. <laughs> Were they like all huddled it right around? It's a good thing it wasn't a pandemic going on because right. we were certainly not separated three feet apart. Right. Trying to watch because the the lessons are on chalkboard. They're okay. called chalkboard lessons. Okay. And they have entrepreneurs that speak or whatever. And it's great lessons. They're really great. But you really do need, you know, to be able to see those lessons. Mm-hmm. and. Years later, I'm teaching a class up in Marshall County Correctional Facility in Holly Springs. And when I got into the classroom, my TV wasn't in there. And I thought, oh, no, I'm in trouble. It's broken down or somebody's gotten in trouble and I can't show my videos. And the offenders were acting a little different than normal. They were kind of antsy or whatever mm-hmm. and enthusiastic. And they opened up, somebody opened up the door, and they wheeled in this big 50-inch colored flat-screen TV, bolted <laughs> down as much as you could bolt that thing down <laughs> on the cart. And those offenders Aww. had saved their money, their canteen money and resources that they get, and bought a big screen TV for class. 
That is awesome stuff. A couple of things. We store it in the warden's office. Don't worry. Right. (laughs) It's safekeeping. But just a couple of things. One, you never find a lot of women, one, just people in general, too, who would go into this line of work with the enthusiasm that you have and the passion that you have for it. That, to me, is just out of this world amazing to me how passionate you are for this whole realm of work that you do. And then secondly, I wanted to know two things. One, before you started going into the prisons, I know you had said right after you got out of undergraduate school, you kind of went into them. Were you ever afraid or nervous to go into the prison system? And then two, how did the prisoners respond to you? Well, I think you'd be surprised at how they respond. I think any time someone from the streets come in and shows an interest in them, they're going to give you respect because they know that you could be in a lot of different places Mm -hmm. than there. And um, you learn to use good judgment. You don't put yourself in situations where there's potential for violence. Uh, My offenders know that I'm the person that can't sit with my back near the door you know, so they always set things up so that, you know, I can run. And when I was a probation parole officer, I traveled around the state of Missouri training probation parole officers on staff safety. And that was one of the things, you know, just set your office up so you can escape, so you can get out. So you always have that mindset of how to make sure that you're safe. Mm-hmm. Your safety is foremost important. And the prison administration are good. You know, they're not going to let volunteers, people come in and put them at risk. And if there's any chance of that, they just won't let you go in and do your programming. And so it just takes and it's been 30 years of doing it. And so you learn how to diffuse situations. If a situation in class starts to get a little heated, mm-hmm. You know, how to take the pause and calm things down. And I've never once felt intimidated being in the situation. And I'm thankful for that. Now, how did they respond to you? Did you notice their response, like, upon first meet? Well, I think they're always surprised, you know, when they see, well, especially years ago when I was much younger, (laughs) You know, they would be surprised that this young, blonde female was coming in off the streets, you know, to mm-hmm. teach them classes. But I am very much to the point, stick to rules and regulations, and they have learned to respect that. But at first, they're kind of shocked. Like, wow, that's not what I expected. Even Clifton Talbert, whenever I first approached him, and said, I'd like to develop this program, and I'd like to implement it at Parchment. He didn't call me back, and he later conceded that he didn't do it because he looked at this blonde white woman and wondered, why would she want to go into prison filled with a bunch of black men? That's a mindset. (laughs) That is the way some people look at things, and we've bumped our heads up against a little feelings every once in a while, but overall, it's not been a problem. In your own lane, Doc. This is a lane made for you. Now, I want to discuss the ELI, the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative program, and your implementation of this in Parchment. That's our correctional facility here in Mississippi, for those of my listeners who are not from the state. And also, I wanted to discuss some of your case study as well. So when you took this program, Gary Schoeniger said, Take it, Linda. We're going to provide you with what you need. What's the importance of teaching from this entrepreneurial standpoint and trying to change mindsets? Yeah, education programs in prison are essential. And what we've typically seen about educational programs and prisons that are related to employment are vocational tech trainings. And it's challenging to create a vocational training program and educational program because once we do, we know the evidence is there that says recidivism is going to be much lower when these guys and women get out of prison. But the resources are just not available for most of our institutions to be able to do that. And that's why we're dependent really on 
volunteers to implement so many of the programs. So teaching vocational skills, important, teaching education, important. But entrepreneurship education, I think, is so key because it's going to help them think beyond just employment skills. Uh, It's not just about how to get a job when you get out of the institution and that, but it's really on a mindset change to address personal and cognitive factors, if you will, that's going to help them adapt to the environmental changes once they get out in the community. Now, Doc, when it comes down to that work that you did, as it relates to the prisoners who may not be released, how important is it for them to learn the entrepreneurial mindset? Is it just... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's so important. Jermaine, I'm telling you, I did this for several years of implementing it in the at Unit 25 at Parchman. And these are inmates that are within 18 to 24 months of being released. And I thought, I wonder what it would be like doing this with a group of offenders who are not going to be released, mm-hmm. or at least not anytime soon. Those that are doing long felony stints, maybe even life without parole. And so I have done that for several years and found it to be extremely rewarding and worthwhile. And what happens more on, instead of developing plans for release, I ask them to view it more as through a social entrepreneurial lens. And we examine what are problems that we have here in the institution what are some of the problems that exist? What can we do to address those problems? Because if it's a problem for you, it's probably a problem for someone else. And we learn throughout this whole course, that's what entrepreneurship is all about, finding ways to resolve problems for other people. And so we have had some very successful projects that have come out of the social entrepreneurship project. Mm -hmm. Now, the case study, tell me, was it the chicken or the egg, basically, (laughs) is what I'm about to ask. Where in the scheme of things did the case study come in in relation to you going into Parchman to teach this initiative? Well, this project was not designed to get a publication, but once I started it, the first day I drove from Oxford, Mississippi, through the Mississippi Delta, an hour and 20 minutes to get to the prison and get through all the security and everything, got in there, taught my class. I left there, and if you could have had a drone, you could have seen me clicking my heels walking out in the parking lot. Damn, we did it. Yeah. I called Gary in Ohio and cried as I was driving back to Oxford. It was so powerful because a lot of effort had been put into making this possible to deliver in the institution. And anecdotally, I knew it worked. This is a hit. This is worthwhile. It's worth my time. It's really worth the offender's time. But I knew I needed to do something empirically to examine whether or not it's really working. And so that's why I conducted the study of the first 29, I think, or so inmates that went through the first year of programming. And I waited until they were released out on parole, and then I contacted them and uh, did a qualitative study to examine the impact that the program had had on them. And that was really fun to do because they learned so much during the course And it's really awesome to see how they were able to apply the material that they learned and put it into practice once they had been released. Right. Now, this case study, for those who don't know, and now I'm telling you, it's called Rethink Reform, reenter an entrepreneurial. Isn't that a great idea. I know. Love that. I know. Rethink, reform, reenter. I'm going to say that again. Rethink, reform, reenter. Everybody can use that. But an entrepreneurial approach to prison programming. So this is just so great. And then the results. Tell me about that when it came out of this 12-week program. What were the results from that? Okay, as I mentioned, I followed up on after they had been released, and the lessons are designed in eight 
different lessons, okay. 12 weeks, but it's based upon the book and the eight lessons that Clifton Taubert learned. And so I would ask them questions about the eight different lessons when I was interviewing them. And then, of course, I found themes that emerged overall. But, for example, the first thing that I teach in the class is on, like, life is not like a lottery and ability to choose the way we respond to our circumstances is fundamental Mm -hmm. to an entrepreneurial mindset. And I teach them that when we start making choices and things in life, we have to learn to react versus responding. Now, you can imagine talking to a group of felony offenders, and I'm telling them, um, you need to learn to respond instead of reacting. And they look at me like, yeah. And I said, because... When we're finished with this, I want to see hands of how many think you'd be in here if you had responded as opposed to reacting. So then that gets their attention. And I mentioned Viktor Frankl. He was a prisoner of war, and he wrote Man's Search for Meaning. And Viktor Frankl says that between the stimulus and a response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose. In our response lies our growth and freedom. Now, anytime you mention freedom to a prisoner, their ears are going to perk up, right? Yeah. So think about it. That is, something happens, there's got to be a gap between that and how you respond. So many of these guys just react. Somebody makes them mad, you just pull out a gun, right? Mm -hmm. You just react. They've got to train to pause between when there is a stimulus, something happens, pause. Then you can make better choices on how you're going to respond to that stimulus as opposed to just reacting. So isn't that a cool lesson? Yeah. I mean, it literally kind of forces you, I just put it upon myself, like I take it all just personally, but it sounds like I'm more forcing you to kind of pump the brakes, think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Now, to you and me, that sounds, oh, duh. You know, we get that. Yeah. But to a group of individuals that are sitting in a maximum security prison, they've usually failed. At pumping the, the brakes. Right, at pumping those brakes. And so with that, we also talk about this internal versus an external locus of control and how you have to nurture that internal locus of control and not let the external things decide your behavior. Mm-hmm. And when I interviewed these offenders upon their release, They were saying that was something that really stuck with them once they got out on the street because so many of them thought that good choices just came from external as opposed to internal locus of control. Like Mm -hmm. an external locus of control, for example, would be like, oh, they're just lucky. You know, they were born into a rich family. I wouldn't be here if I had had money, you know, you know, it's that other people have control over your behavior. If everybody wasn't controlling my behavior, I wouldn't be in prison. That's external thinking instead of internal Uh thinking of I have control over my choices Uh and the power to choose. And they learn that from listening to Uncle Cleve and on those chalk talks that they have in the class. And Clifton chose to escape the cotton fields. He could have stayed right there and worked in the cotton fields just like everyone else. But instead, he ended up in St. Louis, Missouri, and making a very nice living after he invented stair stepper and then everything. You know, so that's something that they learned. So that's just like the, that's just the first lesson on choosing. And then, oh, another one. We have another lesson is on recognizing opportunities. Now, they learned from the class that Uncle Cleve was a problem solver. He knew that problems were opportunities and that if you could identify problems and find solutions for other people, you'll prosper. He didn't set out simply to make money for himself, which so many people think is entrepreneurship. But he paid attention to the world around him. He stayed attuned to problems and issues that others complained about. And he found a way to resolve those issues. He was curious. And these are the lessons that the inmates are learning from the course. And 
So we tell them, you need to look at opportunities, opportunities that arise. And I had an inmate that told me that he got out of prison. And he was down south, close to where you grew up. And he'd gotten out of prison. And guess what? You can't find work. You can't even really find restaurant work because if you have to serve liquor, you can't do that with a felony conviction. Mm -hmm. So he was working at some greasy spoon in a little town. And a couple came in that owned a business in town. And he was serving them. And as he was serving their lunch, he heard them lamenting the fact that one of their employees was quitting and that they were going to have to go through another process of finding a replacement. So he listens to them and the problems that they're having, finishes the shift, clocks out, goes home, cleans up, marches right over to their business. Same day. Same day. (laughs) And said... I served you today at lunch. It was my pleasure to do that. And I think I can help you solve your problem. Hire me. And he said he would never have done that before. But he kept thinking about how Uncle Cleve said, don't let opportunities pass you by. Right. You have to take time, pay attention. And he did. He seized that opportunity. And guess what? They hired him. Right. I know you keep going back to Uncle Cleve, Doc. But I'm going to go back to Dr. Kena. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just passing on his... I know it, but you are the messenger. You are that mitigator who connected those dots that turned the light bulb on for him in that situation. And that is just amazing. Well, it is rewarding. Uh, You know, we have to credit uh, Clifton and Gary for writing the book. And I would recommend to any of your listeners to read that Who Owns the Ice House, Eight Lessons Learned from an Unlikely Entrepreneur, especially listeners here in Mississippi. It really speaks to what life was like here in Mississippi, and may still be for many. Who owns the ice house, everybody? Who, who owns the ice house? Who owns now, another house? lesson we learned, which I think is important, is uh, putting ideas into action. Because an entrepreneur... And this is Gary's quote, is you go before you know. You don't take time researching and spending years developing a business plan and so forth. If you're a true entrepreneur, you put those ideas in action. In spite of circumstances that may surround you and any limitations you may have, you've got to put it to work. Now, how do you do that when you're sitting behind bars? And also, how do you do that when you're sitting behind bars and you know you are not going to get out? Right. How do you do that? You know, I had a guy that was sitting in prison, had spent a lot of time in solitary confinement. And finally, after like 12 years of being in trouble in the prison, decided he was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And he signed up for this class. And so... He recognized the problems they have in segregation and that there's no educational programming and there's nothing that really can help someone get out of the funk they're in and that. And so he developed programs and takes them into solitary confinement or to admin segregation, you know, based on these ideas. I had these ideas. When I was there, I was thinking, this is what they should be doing here. This is what we need. And instead of just saying, this is what we need, he put his ideas in action. And all you can do is put it forth, and in their case, the warden let them implement it. The worst thing it can do is say no. But that's entrepreneurial mindset on that. Go before you know. Right. Now, Doc. Oh, I got another one. Yeah, what? I, can think of, I got all kinds of I know you do. I know you but do. <laughs> the pursuit, uh, one of the things that we teach in the class is pursuit of knowledge. Okay. And that uh, uh, formal education versus informal mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. or informal yeah. In, yeah informal yeah informal education versus formal yeah. education and most of our inmates are sitting in there with limited education and very poor education you know and i'm standing up there with a doctorate into you know and telling them these things and they could easily look at me and say oh yeah look at you uh and you're trying to teach us these things uh but what I did is share with them my pursuit of knowledge 
and how everything I do is a lifelong learning process. And rather accepting a lack of formal education as a limitation, look at it as an opportunity. You know, rather than spending your time idly, you know, just literally killing time in prison, start searching for answers. Get to the library. Read. You know, become an avid reader. Seek knowledge. Seek insight from others. Uh, that's what they can do with their mind while mm-hmm. they're sitting in prison, mm-hmm. and it's going to help them upon release or if they do not get out, because that turnstile never stops turning. That while those inmates that may never be getting out of prison, there are those that they have a lot of influence on that will. So I tell them, if you want to learn something, teach it. Mm-hmm. Not everyone can be in my class. We just don't have the time for that. But you can go back into your units, and you can teach them what you've learned. And when you do that, you're going to learn it better. And you'll spark an interest in others. And, oh, they love that. They love going back into their units and teaching the guys something that they've learned in the class. One offender who got out of prison, and I interviewed him, he said... That this was one of the biggest lessons he learned of that pursuit of knowledge. While in prison, everything is old. The books are old and antiquated. They may get a newspaper that's years old, <laughs> magazines that are 15 years old. You know, they're not the best reading sources. And so he said, when he got out of prison, I'm going to read the newspaper every day. That was his commitment, and he did. So one day he's standing in line to apply for a job, for a position which he knew he probably wasn't going to get because of his felony conviction. And while he was standing in line, he saw a newspaper on the counter nearby. So he gets out of line, gets the newspaper, goes back, gets in line, and he's sitting there reading the newspaper Mm -hmm. because he said that's what he was going to do every day. And while reading the newspaper, he saw where there was a company coming into town and they were going to be hiring folks so forth. So he just gets out of line, drives out to the site, talks to the manager, and they hired him. Good stuff. And his point was, before taking the course, he never thought about the power of constantly trying to learn, to learn new things, that that commitment to reading. And because he did, he ended up with that nice job. Good stuff, Doc. Isn't that cool how they took it and apply it? I love it. And there's, there's just so many things that, uh, nuggets that come out of the course. And as right. you can tell, I'm enthusiastic about it. It's my baby, but it's, it's rewarding. Do they get like a certification or certificate, something yeah. upon completion? Because I know they're not getting a degree, but. It's a very good question. The inmates complete the course. They get a diploma, mm. a certificate. And we have a nice graduation ceremony for them. And during the ceremony, they get to invite family. They get to invite caseworkers, friends who have been part of this journey with them. And so at graduation, we have a nice speech. They select keynote speakers from the class, and then they get their certificate. When the ceremony concludes on the wall, we have their opportunity canvases posted. Now, I hadn't mentioned that, but part of their project is that they create an entrepreneurial opportunity canvas. And it's what would they do if they got out? This is what they would implement out on the street. Or this is what they want to implement in the prison for social entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And I take their plans and put them on three feet by five feet colored posters like we would see at one of our professional conferences and they stand there beside their poster and after the ceremony people get to walk by and ask them questions about what their plan is and their project and it's so cool to watch them they're just beaming standing there beside their project and several of those projects over the years many of those projects have been implemented And that's very rewarding. So they do get that. And obviously, it's important to have that certificate, diploma, if you will, in their jacket or in their file 
whenever they go up before a parole board and being considered for release. So there's certainly that incentive for them to have yeah. that. To me, it would be like there wouldn't be a dry eye in the house there, during graduation. There isn't. There isn't a dry eye in most of our classes. <laughs> really? Right, because when you start really reflecting on a lot of these lessons and it hits you hard about how you've not been successful in it, or more importantly, most of them will concede that they had an Uncle Cleve in their life. They had somebody that cared for them, that had those gems of life lessons that they just didn't listen to. They didn't think it was important or they let poor choices override that. And so as they're going through this, it's very soul-searching. Right. And I try to bring in successful entrepreneurs also because one of the lessons that we have is creating a community and it is impossible to be successful on your own. You know, the power of one is really not that helpful in entrepreneurially thinking. And so we say you have to have an MBA, and that is not a business degree, but it's a mentoring board of advisors. And so entrepreneurs understand the power of positive influence and to learn by those that surround you. So you want to surround yourself with people that are going where you want to go. Now, how important is that for someone sitting at Parchman? If you get out of prison and you surround yourself with the same people that you surrounded yourself with before you went in, chances are you're going to get to go back. You know, the same playground, same playmates, you're going to end up with the same results. But if you find people that have the skills and have the knowledge that are trusted advisors within a community that can be on your board of advisors, you're going to be much more successful upon your release. So we do a lot of brainstorming because it's hard for them to find people that's going to be an advisor for them upon their release. Mm -hmm. So if you have any listeners out there that are interested in this topic at all, that's one thing that you can do is really help to be a mentor for an individual that has spent time in the institution or still in there that you can help them with navigating life. Now, when it comes down to mentoring, have you ever broken down those walls and touched somebody so much that once they were released, they came back to find you? Or once you knew they were released, that you went to help? Has any of that ever happened? All the time. Really? Okay. Well, you know, in years of doing this, I had a lot of them come in and out. And some of them, I see more than my family. And most of them, I never imagined they're ever going to get out. Mm -hmm. And I had a young man in Missouri prison, the only one in all these years that told me he was innocent. He said, Hmm. I'm innocent. But he's the only one I've ever had that declared his innocence. But I treated him just like I did everyone else. And two years ago in August, he was released. And they found that he he was was not guilty. Wow. Wow. And he got out, and he contacted me through a church who was able to get the information, and they contacted me and said he would like to contact you. He didn't, wasn't forceful enough just to contact me first. And I told him, I said, I never, ever expected I'd ever be talking to you on a phone. And he worked with the Innocence Projects now, and he said, you know, how much he appreciated the faith and confidence I had in him. And so that was one of those moments that, after all the years, if just that one thing happened, it'd make it all worthwhile. I mean, I can tell stories all day of how it comes back to be rewarding. Duh. On the other hand, you also get burned. Uh, you know, you have those that you have, you have different expectations, you see different behavior, and then they go out and make some horrible decisions, and, yeah. uh, and you just can't take that personally, and you can't let that impact how you treat the others. Mm-hmm. I love it, Doc. I just love your passion for it. I think it's amazing. I love the work you've done. I love the well, stories you can tell. If I can't be passionate about what we do, we don't need to be doing it, right? Right. 
And so if you have listeners that want to get involved with them, I'd encourage them to contact the Department of Corrections and find out what resources and things they have available that they could get hooked up and plugged in. Right. Now, Doc, what is on the horizon for you? What do your future plans look like? (laughs) (laughs) What else do you have going on? Just give us all your schedule. No. (laughs) Okay. Well, you know, I... Uh, anxiously back in the prisons after the um, pandemic. I, I joked that I got paroled last March, and yeah. uh, I stayed out longer than some of my clients or some of my offenders have stayed out. But most recently, we have implemented a evidence-based policing and reform center at the university. Okay. And the center, it's located on campus, and it was established you know, to begin training for police and other law enforcement in Mississippi and elsewhere to develop around the country using evidence-based practices Mm -hmm. that can allow officers to be more proactive in their work. And we're going to implement training that's going to focus on how police can better engage the community in crime prevention. And so we just jump-started that in the spring and that's been a fun it's the deviation from where i've spent so much of my career in working in corrections especially during the pandemic when we were just inundated with all of that stories of police and you know they were talking about defunding the police which you know i think is ridiculous um you know how i feel about it we have to have police and there are some amazing police officers out there. The bad apples surface, and we have to deal with it. But we haven't gone through a reform of policing since Sir Robert Peel in the 1700s. And it's time that we are serious about doing some transformative and sustainable changes in policing. Can you say that maybe that is a bit broken of a system since we do need that reform? I think it's a squeaky wheel. Okay. Um, I wouldn't say it's broken, mm-hmm. but you know it needs some oiling. And um, we are in a position here in Mississippi. If we can make some changes here, good gracious, we can make it anywhere, right? We were the first to do this. Mississippi, at parchment of all places, was the first place in the country to implement the Ice House Entrepreneurship course in a correctional facility. And it is amazing. It's great to be a part of something finally in Mississippi where they're first instead of the last right. to do something. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yay. There. <laughs> finally. Good stuff, Doc. I am just in love with the whole thing when it comes down to all the work you have done. Quick question. If anybody wanted to learn more about you, I'm going to say that because I know you like to put it off on the, you know, the program and the initiative and everything else that goes around it. But if they wanted to learn a little bit more about you or about the case study that you wrote, can they just go out there and just Google you? <laughs> yeah, they can. And um, don't believe everything you read. But no, they can go to the University of Mississippi. Information is there on our webpage, obviously. And you gave them the name of that manuscript mm-hmm. that was published, and they can Google that and rethink, reform, reenter. Mm-hmm. They would you know, be able to access that, and they can always send me emails. I'm pretty much tethered to a keyboard. Doc, I thank you so much for joining us here on Chalkboard Chat. Listen, audience, this was Dr. Linda Kina. She is a professor of criminal justice and legal studies at the University of Mississippi. She wrote the case study, Rethink, Reform, Reenter, an Entrepreneurial Approach to Prison Programming. That's to help them break the cycle of traditional release, reoffend, and return. So this is all to help the prisoners who are in going to be released and the ones who are in 
who may not be released. And this was all from the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative program that she helped implement inside of Parchman. And just the work she has done has been so amazing, touching so many people here across the state, whether it be the prisoners in prison, whether it be their families at home and the community that they go back to. So, Dr. Linda Kena, I thank you so much for all that you have done for Mississippi Prison Education. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Up next, we'll talk to Gary Schuniger, the founder and CEO of the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative. He's going to tell us all about how he got that started, all about the information that goes into that initiative and his passion for the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative right here on Chalkboard Chat. Attention college students. Hi, I'm Jasmine Harvey, student engagement specialist here at Mississippi Public Broadcasting. MPB's education department has an awesome opportunity for two college students to assist me with the new MPB Student Council. This is one opportunity you don't want to miss. To learn more about the MPB Student Council and how you or someone you know can help, email jasmine.harvey at mpbonline.org. Jermaine Flood in for Chalkboard Chat. This is our Mississippi Prisons Education and Reentry episode. Right now in with me, I have founder and CEO of the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative, Mr. Gary Scherniger, an internationally recognized thought leader in the field of entrepreneurial mindset education. His message has influenced a broad audience from academic institutions and economic development organizations to government and nonprofit clients worldwide. Now, as the founder and CEO of the Entrepreneurial your learning initiative, Gary has led the development of the Ice House Entrepreneurship Program, which has been recognized by the Kaufman Foundation as redefining entrepreneurship education in classrooms and communities around the world. Now, with his focus on the entrepreneurial mindset, Gary has presented numerous keynotes, workshops, and training programs throughout the U.S. and abroad. He's a member of the Forbes Business Council and the Dean's Council at Purdue Polytechnic Institute. Welcome again, Mr. Scherniger. Really excited to have this conversation with you. Yes, I am so excited to have this with you. This subject has been at the tip top of my mind because it is so important to kind of dig into education in Mississippi prisons. But I want to back up to the ELI Institute. This is that initiative, the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative that you are founder and CEO of. So let my audience know what exactly is the ELI and why did you create it? So I'm going to start with the why first, Jermaine. It's part of a, like a lifelong fascination I've had with, with this really simple question. How do underdogs win? How do people who have no advantage in life manage to recognize opportunities? How do they mobilize the resources and make things happen when they don't have access to power and privilege and you know, Ivy League credentials and so forth. How does that happen? That's a question I've been trying to answer for more than 30 years. And, Jermaine, what I did really was I started by interviewing underdog entrepreneurs. Most people are enamored with, like, the Elon Musks and the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, but we're not really paying attention to the underdogs. And there's a lot we can learn from these folks. There's there's common patterns in their logic, there's common uh, beliefs and, and behaviors that really can empower people in a lot of different situations. So that's basically what we've done. We've, we've, we've looked at the literature, we've interviewed hundreds of underdog entrepreneurs now around the world, created curriculum learning programs, uh, education, the training, professional development programs to teach people how to think like entrepreneurs. Now, I want to be clear, that's, that, that's bigger than just starting a business. Like, you know, starting a business is one way to manifest an entrepreneurial mindset, but it's not the only way. You can go a long way working. You can be very entrepreneurial and work for someone else. It's not necessarily constrained to starting a business. It's really about the mindset, which is how do you recognize opportunities and then how do you bring those opportunities to life 
in a way that benefits others and the self. I consider myself an underdog. I mean, not to the extent that some of these people I've interviewed, but, you know, I don't come from a wealthy family. I didn't do really well in school. I never went to college. I barely got out of high school. I had a bunch of jobs that just don't pay much, don't require much of you, and don't have a, a path towards something. I didn't see as a path towards something better. So, you know, in my 20s, I, I was just desperate. I, I was broke. I was in debt. I took a ladder. I borrowed a ladder from a friend of mine, strapped it on the roof of my car, and went into a wealthy neighborhood, a suburb of Cleveland. And I began knocking on doors, offering to clean the leaves out of people's gutters. I didn't know what the word entrepreneur meant at the time. I, I'm afraid of heights. I'm not from a wealthy neighborhood. You know, I was out of my comfort zone. But the desperation kind of pushed me there. And I had enough common sense to show up when I said I was going to show up, do what I said I was going to do, you know, do it reasonably well, clean up after myself, make sure the customer is happy. Not rocket science. I'm not the sharpest knife in the shed. But fast forward, 12 years later, I had a company that was doing about $5 million a year in revenue. And in that journey... I soon realized as I was evolving from like gutter cleaning to handyman to building homes and real estate development, I realized that entrepreneurs think differently. And I saw a story in the paper one day. It was 1991. It was January 1991. saw a story in the paper about a guy that had lost his job. It was like a metro section story. Guy lost his job. It's not coming back. He's afraid of losing his home. Unemployment benefits are running out. You know what to do. And I looked at this picture of this guy sitting with his wife in his living room, you know. And I said, I can see opportunities everywhere. Why can't he? I don't think that I'm any smarter than this guy, but I've learned because of my experience, my mind has adapted differently. Kind of like a blind person, you know, you lose your eyesight. And your other senses kind of adapt around that. The same was true. I started to recognize opportunities. And I also saw that I was making as much money, if not more, than any of my friends that had done well in school and gone to college and taken a more traditional route. And so that's where I connected with this idea. If I could somehow deconstruct the mindset of an entrepreneur, there's a logical framework there that I could help other people with this. This could help people. People ask me, like, well, what is an entrepreneurial mindset? And I respond by saying, well, wait a minute. What, what is that? It means, like, someone else tells me what to learn and what to do in order to be successful. I mean, we, we don't realize that, you know, from the moment we set foot in school, it's assumed that we're going to work in an established organization where the useful thing, whatever that is, has already been established. And we're going to be expected to fulfill a predetermined role in that organization. And, and fair enough, like that worked well enough for a while, right? You could walk out of high school and go walk into the GM plant to get a good job, you know, for the rest of your life. You could feed a family and have a decent life. That will no longer exist. And when I ask people sometimes, what, well, look, we all live by exchanging useful things with each other. That's sort of the building block of a modern economy, right? We're not agrarian farmers. We're not hunter-gatherers. We all live by exchanging useful things. So the question is, what is the useful thing that you're exchanging? And with whom are you exchanging it? And I think more importantly, the question is, what is the mechanism by which you learned how to become useful to other humans. And it brings us to the understanding that we've kind of bought into this idea that someone else has figured out what we need to learn and do in order to be successful in life. And when that happens, we stop taking responsibility. And so, you know, it took me a long time to be able to articulate this, but it's like, I want to ask people, what is stopping you 
from making yourself more useful to more humans. You don't need money to figure out how to make yourself useful. You don't need credentials to figure out how to make yourself useful. You don't need a genius IQ. You don't need to quit the job you have or drop out of the school you're in. That's really the essence of the entrepreneurial mindset is this underlying assumption, deeply held, mostly taken for granted assumption, that it's up to me to figure out how to make myself useful to other humans. And the more useful I become, the better off I'm going to be. I don't even think of it as a business discipline. I just think of it as a life skill. You know, it's interesting because a mindset is like, you know, Carl Jung said this, like, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it faith. That's really the, the essence of it. And, and a lot of the work we do, you know, we've developed the curriculum, we've developed the Ice House programs, which have gone all over the world. We spend a lot of time training education, educators, organizational leaders, community stakeholders on how to cultivate this mindset in others. Part of our secret sauce, if you will, is in our training and our programs and the curriculum, the Ice House programs, we have little video vignettes from some of the entrepreneurs we've interviewed. And so the core concepts are reinforced by not by Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, but by former felons, by a father and daughter from like inner city Philly, from a disabled veteran, from a foster kid, from a former gangbanger, from people that were on the wrong side of things, figured it out. And so you know, their testimonial not only reinforces the core concepts and it, it provides, you know, what a psychologist calls a relatable social model. Like, I need to see people who came from where I came from succeeding in this domain. That's what part of the magic is for the Ice House program. You know, I was doing this research project for Cisco Entrepreneur Institute in 2008. And they hired me to do a gap analysis on the entrepreneurship education ecosystem in North America, and then to provide some content to fill in those gaps. And straight away, we found that the way entrepreneurship is being portrayed in the classroom is largely divorced from the reality of what a typical entrepreneur is actually doing. So I came back to Cisco and I said, you know, this is kind of a big mismatch here. And they said, well, what are entrepreneurs really doing? And I said, well, I have a hunch. But, you know, we need to verify this. So Cisco gave me a platform to go around the United States and interview a couple hundred entrepreneurs. And I'm flying around the country. I'm hearing about people that have just done amazing things that have come from nothing. I stumbled across a guy in Tulsa, Oklahoma named Clifton Talbert. I met him on about two hours notice by chance. I did, all I knew at the time was that he was one of the founders of this Stairmaster exercise company. And I showed up in his office with a film guy and I said, we're going to do this interview, Cisco interview. I had no idea he was a Pulitzer nominee, made major motion pictures and done all these other things. But I said to him, like Mr. Talbert, he was about 65 at the time, you know, 2008, 2009. And I said, what influenced you to be entrepreneurial? And I'll never forget this. He kind of looked off in the middle distance for a second and explained to me that he was born in this poor cotton community in, in the Mississippi Delta, in, in uh, Glen Allen, Mississippi. And he was born to a teenage mother. He never knew a dad until he was well into adulthood, and he was, like, living with relatives. And he said, working in a field where that was the expected way of life for people that looked like me. And he said when he was 13 years old, he went to work for his uncle, his Uncle Cleve Mormon, who happened to own the local ice house. And he started to describe his uncle and, you know, guy had a fourth or a fifth grade education. They weren't allowed in the bank, but every two weeks he took money and put it in the bank. And, you know, Clifton described the influence of this guy. And as he described it, I said, man, this is the same logic I've heard from hundreds of entrepreneurs. And this is a fundamental logic that transcends time, race, gender, socioeconomics. There's a fundamental logic there. And so that became the basis for a book we co-authored called Who Owns the Ice House? Eight Life Lessons from an Unlikely Entrepreneur. And it's really 
you know, a distillation of eight concepts that we distilled from hundreds of interviews told through the story of Clifton Talbert and the influence of his uncle Cleve in the as he came of age in the 1950s in the Mississippi Delta. Clifton's story gave me a framework to grab onto to something I was trying to say, like this can empower people in any situation, regardless of where they come from. This way of thinking can empower people. That's really what it's all about. I've said this a million times. I'll say it again. I think a lot of the the training that's now in place for returning citizens is setting them up for failure. I just think the secret is to teach these folks how to think like entrepreneurs. Instead of asking for a job, look for problems you can solve. It changes the dynamic of the relationship. You've got a problem. I've got a solution. You know, I, I remember this is like back in, 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 in early 2000s, and I was sort of still tinkering around with this stuff, and I still had my construction management company. And I, I, I knew I was going to have to learn how to speak publicly, like to stand up in front of people and, and talk, which I was terrified to do. And so I went to a homeless shelter in Cleveland, like on Tuesday mornings, I'd go to this homeless shelter and I'd give talks. There'd be six or eight people in the homeless shelter. I'd just give talks and try to, you know, see if these ideas resonated. I just figured it's like this is, I'm not getting paid for it. I, I don't have to be all polished. And I met a guy there. His name was Todd Daniel. He's about 38 years old, just spent 12 years in prison, living with his father, you know, his elderly father. And I was coaching him. He said, like, you're going to have to knock on 100 doors setting them up for that. Like you, you can't get dejected when you re- get rejected by door number four. So door number 40, whatever it was, he got a minimum wage job at a call center. And he said to me, he said to me, I got nowhere to go, but up. So he showed up at this job at seven o'clock in the morning. He said, they only paid me for one shift, but I worked two shifts. He left at 11 o'clock at night. Cause he said, all that's left for me is the streets out there getting trouble. He said one morning he was going to work. He saw the McDonald's. He had four or five dollars to his name. He saw the McDonald's, and, and his old dealer rolled up on him and handed him a wad of cash. And he just said, "Like, nah, man, I'm good." So I had a decision to make. Two years later, they were sending him to the Philippines and South Africa to set up call centers. But like, and he didn't own the business, but he owned it. He understood. He was operating from this perspective. It's like. I got to make myself more useful. That's the entrepreneurial mindset. You can take it with you wherever you go, wherever you start. You don't need money. You don't need to be a genius. You don't need a business plan. But you need to see, like, you need to see other people succeeding in this domain. And so that's why it's so important to show people these relatable models, to expose them to other people who came from similar or worse circumstances. The thing that Uncle Cleve taught me, and I never met the man. I, I, I would give anything to, to have met him. I just, every time I talk to Clifton, I want more about Uncle Cleve. He was like a stoic. Clifton told me the people in his own community were ridiculing him because he wasn't wearing his money on his sleeve. He was driving an old 1947 International Harvester pickup truck. But there was books in it. He wasn't driving a fancy car and wearing fancy clothes. But he owned the ice house. He owned rental properties. He was fixing like what Clifton called high-dollar cars. He was driving over to the next town, uh, Greenville, to talk to the Jewish merchant, you know, to kind of download from him. Like, you know, he he was creating his own little knowledge networks. But the, the real lesson from Uncle Cleve is what I would call like a simple secret that's hiding in plain sight. And that is you can get what you want by helping other people get what they want. And we miss it because we're trying to get our own needs met. And I'm as guilty of that as anyone. You got to pay the bills. You got to raise the kids. You got to take them to school. You got to save a little bit of money. You got to try to, you know, whatever. It never occurs to us by helping other people get what they want, we can get what we want. That's the simple secret. Like Clifton told me, 
1958, Glen Allen, Mississippi is hot. Everybody needs ice. The white folks need ice. The black folks need ice. The Chinese people, the Jewish people, it doesn't matter. They all need ice. That's the power of the ice house. That's the message from the ice house. What I'm trying to show the world is that these, there's Uncle Cleese everywhere. You just, they're just, they're not driving Lamborghinis and they're not on television. It's not the housewives of, or, you know, whatever. They're in every town. They're everywhere. They're just doing it. And, and they, they don't really stand out. You got to go looking for them, but they're there. And that's part of my mission. You know, I just launched a new podcast called the Entrepreneurial Mindset Project, where we're now we're just making these stories available to people to help people realize, like, look, this is something you can do. You know, I'll tell you what I would like to leave you guys with. And I've done training. I've interviewed entrepreneurs all over Latin America, South Africa, Russia, Europe, you know, Canada and the U.S. And I've heard hundreds of these stories. And I can tell you, you are way more powerful than you could possibly imagine. The only way you're going to figure it out is get out and try to figure out how to make yourself more useful to more humans. If you want any more information about the ELI initiative, that's the Entrepreneurial Learning Initiative, you can visit ELIMindset.com to get more information about that, to get more information about the ELI podcast. Also, if you wanted to look into the case study from Dr. Linda Kina at the University of Mississippi, that case study is called Rethink, Reform, Reenter, an Entrepreneurial Approach to Prison Programming. And that is where she implemented that ELI initiative in the maximum security prisons here in the state of Mississippi. Thank you so much for joining us. Class is now dismissed. You've been listening to Chalkboard Chat, an MPB education podcast. To hear this episode and more, visit education.mpbonline.org or download the MPB public media app to listen on your iPhone or Android device. This podcast is hosted with love by ACAST.